is everything. Probably heard this phrase before, haven't you? It's one of those truths that's just ingrained in us. This is one of those facts of life that each of us know deep down to be true, that timing is everything. A certain act can be considered unquestionably right or incredibly wrong solely based upon timing. Think about it. Let's say you have a friend who's having a really bad day, so you decide to send him or her a text to cheer them up. That's a great thing, isn't it? But if you do it while driving, not so great. Because timing is everything. Let's say you have a family member who you want to call on his or her birthday to wish them a great day. That's wonderful. I would encourage you to do that, but not during the middle of a movie at the car mic. Why? Because timing is everything. It's essential in your job, isn't it? For example, getting to work five minutes early is a whole lot better than ten minutes late. Am I right? And uh, my guess is that if you finish a task before deadline, that's going to go over a whole lot better than three days after. Am I right? Because timing is everything. How about in cooking? Is timing important in cooking? Yeah. A burger taken off the grill too early or too late can either leave you with a raw piece of meat or a burnt-up piece of charcoal. Because timing is everything. Timing is also important when it comes to relationships, isn't it? Guys, though it's good for you to tell your wife that she's beautiful, that's a great thing, I wouldn't suggest doing it right after she says to you, you never tell me I look beautiful. Guys, timing's everything, isn't it? This morning, we are going to learn that this is also true when it comes to the physical relationship between a man and a woman. I think we would all agree that timing is everything, especially in this area. As we've said already in this study through our book on 1 Corinthians, there is nothing wrong with the sexual act. It's a beautiful and deeply spiritual act. God set it up in that way. It is a spiritual union like we discussed a few weeks ago. So it's a great thing if it's done at the proper time and in the proper context. Think of it in this way. It's kind of like fire. Fire is great in a fireplace, isn't it? But if you take it out, it can be really dangerous. In the same way, sex is great if it takes place within the marriage. Outside of the marriage, however, it can be disastrous. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing our series this morning through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is what's next in the text. Paul is shifting gears a bit this morning, and he is going to talk about relationships. In this chapter, chapter 7, he is going to talk at length about being married, being single. He is going to address issues like celibacy and divorce, among other things. And as you can see, this is a very lengthy chapter, isn't it? Forty verses. So we're going to be camping out in chapter 7 
for the next three weeks. But I think you're really going to enjoy this chapter. And the reason why is because Paul has a word for every one of us in this chapter. Whether you are single or married, in a relationship, out of a relationship, whether you're widowed or divorced, whatever situation you find yourself in, Paul has a word for you here in this chapter. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And Paul is going to tell us here that timing is everything when it comes to physical sexual relationship. In this passage he is going to tell us when it's right to partake and when we are to abstain. But before we get into chapter 7, it's very important for you to understand the state of things in Corinth when it comes to relationships. Now, let me ask you this question before we get started. Why do you think Paul devoted an entire 40 verses to relationships here in chapter 7? Well, the answer is simple. The church at Corinth was a messy church, right? It's what we've been talking about. And their relationships were in shambles. They were. You know, we hear all the time about the fact that... that about how bad our relationships are in our world today. We hear about how divorce rates are through the roof. Well, guess what? Divorce rates were much, much higher in Corinth in the first century. You thought our society was bad? Just take whatever you thought about what's bad, whatever you think is bad in our culture, and multiply it by 20, and you'll have Corinth. All right? Now, I'm not saying that so that we'll just kind of turn a blind eye to our problems and, and say, okay, then it's not a very big deal. It is. That's not what I'm getting at. But my hope is that you will avoid becoming fatalistic when you think about our culture, thinking we're as bad off as we've ever been and beyond all hope. Was that Paul's mentality when dealing with the Corinthians? No. No. And it shouldn't be ours either. Listen, the reason this book is a great book for us to study is because we have right here in our Bibles a letter written to a church with the exact same kinds of problems we're having today. I mean, Paul here has written a letter to the 21st century church in the first century. We can know exactly as believers how we are to live as light in this dark world by studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And I hope that you see this, and I hope you value this book, and I hope as you look back on this book and as you read it and study it in the years to come, it'll help you be just that, light in a dark world. Now, let's look a bit more at the context in Corinth. Like I said a moment ago, relationships were not good in Corinth. Things were so bad that they actually wrote a letter to Paul talking about issues they were having. And in chapter 7, verse 1, notice Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they wrote a letter to Paul asking him questions and, and uh, about a bunch of different issues. And Paul, for the most part, for the rest of this book, he is addressing these specific questions that the Corinthians are having, these issues they're having. He's addressing these things. The first question Paul deals with, deals with relationships. 
Most importantly, more, more specifically in verses 1 through 9, the, the marriage relationship. I mean, you, you talk about marriage, once again, being under attack in our world. It was under attack in the first century in Corinth. At this time, divorce was as common as marriage. There are records of people who, in, in first century in Corinth, who had been married as many as 30 times in Corinth. This was common. They counted their years by their wives. Talk about a high divorce rate. It's pretty high. There was also immorality. There was marital unfaithfulness. That was the norm. There was also rampant homosexuality, prostitution, and concubinage. Meaning there were men who used their wives as maids to keep the house clean and cook the meals. And then they had another woman all together they used for pleasure. It was a mess. And as a result, women wanted out of the marriage. Can you blame them? But the guys wanted out as well. And they would divorce each other on a regular basis. And, and this brought about another problem. In the midst of all this mess, there were some who, who became champions for singleness, which wasn't bad in and of itself. And you can't really blame them when you learn about the context. You know, relationships were, were in such a mess that these individuals said the best way out of this mess is just to not get married at all, just to forget the whole thing. But they began to get very negative about marriage. They began to view it in a negative way. We have many with this mentality in our world today, don't we? We have many with a negative view on marriage who think it's better just to be single. Christians at Corinth, they shared this, this sentiment. They had seen the negatives of marriage and the nastiness of divorce, and they said, it's more spiritual for us to just remain single. So we're going to be bachelors and bachelorettes for life. You also have individuals who come to Christ, and their spouse does not accept their newfound faith, so they think to be a godly person, more of a godly person, they'll just divorce that unbelieving spouse to be single again because they believed being single to be godly, so they believed this was their only, only move to make. And Paul has to address this as well. It's just, it's just a mess. And like, like I said, we, we see similar trends in our world today. Today, if you view marriage as a lifelong commitment, they think that if the going gets tough, we can just separate and go our own ways, and many do. Today, open marriages are becoming more and more common, and many are living together before marriage, and they view that as being a, a must. For many, marriage is not even an option. Some who witnessed their parents go through terrible divorces had made the decision early on that, that they were not going to do that. They were either going to stay single or have friends with benefits or have live-in boyfriends or girlfriends and even children together without ever a thought of getting married. Believers, maybe some of you in here this morning have been influenced by this way of thinking. Well, Paul is going to rain on your parade this morning. He's going to show us in this passage that we are not to live like we are married when we are not. Timing is everything. 
And the only time it's okay for us to live together, have sex with one another, and have children together is after we have said, I do. That's the sermon right there. But don't leave yet, okay? Some of you may be ready to, but don't leave yet. We still got a passage to look at, all right? In this passage, Paul is going to give great counsel to unmarried people as well as married couples about sexual temptations and the right and wrong time to partake and abstain from it. First, he says this, if you are married, if you are unmarried, abstain. You got to be careful. I messed myself up. If you are unmarried, abstain. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now let's stop there for a moment. Alright? If you have a King James Bible or a New King James or an NASB, the word touch is used. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And you probably read that and thought, that sounds a little picky. I heard a story recently about a church youth group that was having a hayride. There was a woman there, one of the chaperones, who was a very prudish person. And she decided they were going to have two separate hayrides. One trailer for the boys and one trailer for the girls. You talk about a bummer, that's it, right? Yeah. And her justification was 1 Corinthians 7. She said that if the boys and girls sat close enough to bump shoulders, this would violate this passage of Scripture that says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's not what this verse is saying, okay? The concept of touching a woman here is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. That's what that means. I think the ESV got it right on here by translating it to have sexual relations. So Paul is saying here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, know here, he is talking about a single person. All right, that's going to be made clear in the upcoming verses. Paul is talking about singles here. It's good if you're single to not have sexual relations. Now, this is very important. I want you to get this, okay? When pastors and church leaders say things like you're not to have sex before marriage, it often sounds like a punishment to those who are single. As if God thinks less of single people. And here in verse 1, notice what Paul says, however. He says, hey, it's good. It's good to be single. There were some in Corinth who had chosen not to marry and who had chosen to devote themselves to, to God. And Paul says, that's good. So have I. Now, he doesn't say it's the only good thing, okay, married folks. He doesn't say it's the only good thing. He's simply making the point here that at times it's okay. It's, it's not bad to be single. In fact, it can be really good and really God-honoring. He says down in verse 8, look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. Again, it is good to be single. And this is a good word for us today, isn't it? Some in our world... 
have a tendency to say, if you're unmarried, you know, we have a tendency to say, man, there must be something wrong with them because they're single. You know, well, he or she's not married. I wonder what the quirks are, you know? I, w- I wonder what the skeletons in that closet is. We, we have a tendency to think in this way and to talk in this way about single people. That is not to be our attitude toward single people in the church. Paul says, look, it's, it's good to be single. Now, again, when Paul says good, he's not comparing the two. He's not comparing being single to being married. He's just saying there are benefits also to being single. It can be a good thing. It can be profitable. It can be praiseworthy. He's just giving a positive statement about it. So God does not penalize single people or think of them as less important. Now, with that being said, it's important to note here, Like we've said already, that though it's good to be single, being single has its challenges. does. Verses 1 and 2, Paul speaks about celibacy. When he talks about not having sexual relations, he speaks about it synonymously with being single. Celibate and single are one and the same thing in Scripture. They are spoken of synonymously here. The two words go together. In other words, if you are single, you are not to have sexual relations, period. There are no exceptions to that. Now, you can call that old-fashioned. I just call it biblical. It's clear here. Well, some will say, well, I'm not single, I'm dating. It doesn't matter. Like we said, timing is everything, and there is never a time before you are married to have sexual relations with anyone. That is clear from the Scriptures. Now again, society will tell you different. How many of you heard someone say, if you love someone, hey, it's okay. Or, I've been dating this person for a few months, so it's time to take that necessary next step. Or I've heard some people say, before I marry, I I need to make sure that, that we're sexually compatible. No, listen. If you're not married, but dating, you don't have to try on your own to figure out when the appropriate time is. I mean, I can step into your relationship right now and tell you when the appropriate time is according to the Word of God. And that is when you are married. So though being single is good, sex when you're single is not good according to scriptures, which makes being single challenging. Now look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul says, though it's good to be single, so you can devote yourself to the Lord and live and serve Him like I have, being single is difficult because of sexual temptations. That's why he says, for that reason, men and women should marry. He says on down in verse 9, but if they, they being single people here, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is not saying that everyone must marry. But he is saying that if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And he also says 
that marriage should be the norm because these kinds of desires are common to man and tough to resist. Now, some have read these verses of Scripture and say, well, I question Paul's motivation here for getting married. You know, some question his motivation. They say, is Paul saying here, the only reason for me to get married is to stay out of trouble when it comes to sexual sin? Is he saying I need to rush out and find the first single person that, that's willing to say I do and, and, and marry them? No, and I'm, I'm here to tell you nine times out of ten, that's not going to end well. Though purity is one of the reasons not to get married, it's not the only reason. It's one of the reasons, but not the only reason. Scripture is clear. We're not just to marry to stay pure, but also for procreation, for pleasure, and by the way, I've got references in your spiritual growth guide that, that, that talk about these different reasons to marry. So procreation, pleasure, provision, partnership, and marriage is also a picture. Marriage is given as a picture in Ephesians 5, symbolizing the Lord's relationship to His church. So we're not just to marry just for the sake of purity, though that needs to be there, one of our motivations, but for these other reasons as well. But in this passage, Paul is addressing one motivation in particular. That of purity. So for those of you in here who are single or have chosen to remain single, know that this is a challenging path to be single because of the temptation to have sexual relations outside of marriage. And unfortunately, in our world, like the world in Corinth, doesn't make it easy on our single folks, does it? No. There's just this constant barrage of sexual temptation that's just thrown at us. And our society mocks virginity and abstinence left and right. It views it as, as just being abnormal and strange. So there's a whole lot of difficulties that come from living the single life. On down in this passage, Paul says that celibacy is a unique gift, meaning it's certainly not for everyone. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. Once again, Paul is making the point that though it's not mandatory to marry, it is to be the norm because of sexual temptation. Being single and celibate like Paul is a rare and unique gift. Now, once again, Paul says, I wish all were like me. When he says that, he's not saying he despises marriage. He's just making the point, once again, that being single and celibate and sold out to the Lord has its advantages and is a good thing. Paul is probably thinking back from about all, the, about all the fruit from his own ministry that came as a result of him being single and sold out and thought, you know, I wish more people could take the path that I've taken. And listen, many have. And there have been wonderful fruit and great results that have come from singles who have been sold out for Christ. They've made a huge impact in this world for him. But again, Paul realizes this is not for everyone. The single life is difficult, all right? If you remain single, Scripture says you are to abstain, which makes it challenging to be single. Second, Paul says this. If you are married, partake. 
Now you may say, well, that's obvious. Well, not to the Corinthians it wasn't, which makes, which is uh, uh, why Paul spends three verses here clearing this up. You see, many of the Christians at Corinth, because they had been exposed to all sorts of sexually immoral activity before being saved, they now thought that now we belong to the Lord, we have to be totally set apart for God, and we're to stop this kind of activity altogether. So some overzealous husbands were saying, I'm completely devoted to God, therefore I am to have nothing to do with my wife in that way. And the wives were saying the same things about their husbands. That's what was taking place in Corinth. So Paul writes to them here, and in verse 3, look at what Paul says. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now the word translated conjugal rights can literally be translated as debt. Paul is literally saying here, let the husband render unto the wife the debt, and likewise the wife to the husband. Paul is saying, husbands and wives, you have an obligation in your marriage to give to one another what you owe one another. It's a debt. You are a debtor men to your wives, and wives, you are a debtor to your husband, even if he or she is an unbeliever. Something else here. The word give is in the present active imperative. And many of you are like, okay, big deal. What does that mean? What that means is, Paul is talking about a continuous action here. He is calling for the husband and wife to continually render to one another the debt. Now, some of you may not like that. There's nothing I can do about it. Absolutely nothing. That's the way God chose to say it. And that's what he meant by it. Like I've said in the past, I'm just the mailman, okay? I don't write the letters, I just deliver the messages. Paul is saying, look, you have an obligation to one another to fulfill the physical desire, physical love, and physical needs that each other has. Mutual sexual love and marriage is God's design, and it's your duty to one another. Therefore, Paul says, pay your debt to one another. He goes on to say in verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, husbands, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in verse 3, Paul says, pay your dues to one another. Why? Verse 4, because when you came together as husband and wife, when you got married, you released the authority of your body over to your spouse. Again, not my words, God's words. You have released it over to your partner. In verse 4, Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. But guys, you do not have authority over your own body, but your wife does. So men, you belong to your wives. Wives, you belong to your husbands. So husbands, when you say to your wives, you're mine. And wives, when you say to your husband, honey, you're mine, you're both right in the truest, most pure sense. That is straight from the Word of God. Husbands and wives in here, you can quote these verses to one another and know that God supports the love and the desire that you have 
from one another. He gave you that desire. He did. And made the physical relationship a, a great part of the marriage. How many of you know in here that God gave us a whole book just written on the physical part of marriage? Yeah. The Song of Solomon, right? This book gives us a great word here on the physical desires of marriage. Listen to what Solomon writes here. He says, Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. You are all fair, my love, and there is no flaw in you. Ladies, how many of you would love to hear your husband say that? No flaw in you. Guys, we've got some work to do, right? Yeah. He says, you've ravished my heart. This guy's sick with love, you see? This book deals with the desires that a man has for his wife and that a wife has for a husband, and that's the way it ought to be. That's the way God designed it. The sexual desire of a husband for a wife and a wife for a husband is a wonderful thing. Paul continues with this point in the first part of verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another. He says, do not deny one another what you owe one another. He's telling the Corinthians, don't break up your marriage because you think being single is more spiritual. Though being single is good, it's great to be married. Peter calls marriage the grace of life. In East Texas terms, that's the gravy. All right? If life is the biscuit, marriage is the gravy. All right? Yeah, you, I'm speaking y'all's language. That's right. It's the East Texas version of the Scriptures. So, if you are married, do not deprive one another, but instead give of yourself to one another and enjoy one another and know that God supports the desires that you have as husband and wife. So briefly in review, Paul gives some great counsel here in this passage to those who are unmarried and to those who are married about sexual temptations and about sexual desire. And he tells us that if you are unmarried, you are to abstain. And if you are married, you are to partake. Now in verse 5, he gives one more word to married folks. Let's look at it. Number three, if in agreement... Married folks, briefly, go without. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Paul says, look, there may be times when you are in agreement to, to not have physical relations for spiritual reasons. He said, you may want to devote yourselves to prayer. And some of you snicker at that. And you think, yeah, me and my husband or me and my wife, we don't. But it's not because we're praying with one another. Well, Paul here is assuming that your relationship as believers is centered upon spiritual things. Husbands and wives, it, it should be. Like I've said before, our society is is backwards, and we as believers are often, more often than not, influenced by this twisted world in which we live. Though spiritual things, the things of God, should be priority one in our lives individually and as a, as a couple, as husband and wife, oftentimes they're secondary at best and not even that. Some of you hear Paul say, 
You're not to deprive one another with the exception of prayer. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not very often then. Because we don't spend a lot of time doing spiritual things together. Maybe Paul is telling you this morning something that needs to change in your relationship. Maybe this verse is telling you, among other things, that you should be more devoted as a couple to the things of God than what you are already. But Paul does say you need to be in agreement when you go without, and it should be for spiritual reasons. Why spiritual? Because your life and your marriage should be centered upon the things of God. Now notice what Paul says, for a time. Not for a long time, but for a set time. Not indefinitely, but a prescribed time. Why not for a long time? Look at the end of verse 5. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, it's, it's dangerous, couples, to withdraw from your partner from an extended, for an extended period of time because when you do, you're putting them in a place where Satan may tempt him or her because of their lack of self-control. Now, many think this verse is primarily speaking to the guys, but that's not true. Guys, when we fail to meet the intimate needs of our wives emotionally and physically, there is a temptation for her as well to find it elsewhere. And this too can lead to an adulterous situation. So there, 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 though there are times when you go without briefly, make sure you come together again and, and meet one another's needs so that Satan may not tempt you and play off of your lack of self-control. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and what I've been saying is completely foreign to you. Maybe you were educated sexually from a young age, and you were taught that having sex outside of marriage was just no big deal. It's just a rite of passage. And you think that I'm promoting some sort of leave-it-to-beaver kind of existence that's just out of touch with the real world. I want you to know something. What I've been sharing with you this morning is not some sort of 1950s TV land existence. This is God's design for marriage. It is. Like it or not, it's God's design for marriage. There are many in our world today who think they have it all figured out when it comes to relationships. Our society thinks it's got all the answers, but it doesn't take long for us to realize that our world People in our world, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. Truth is, we've made a mess of marriage. We have taken an institution established by God and we have robbed it of all its sanctity. Listen, God calls for us to commit ourselves to a higher standard when it comes to relationships. While at times our world promotes being friends with benefits or having open relationships, listen, God calls for one man to make a lifelong commitment to one woman and for one woman to make the same commitment to one man until death parts him. That's what he calls for. He called us to so much more, to be so much more than roommates that cohabitate. He has called us to live as one flesh. You want to experience true happiness and joy in relationships? Embrace God's design for marriage. But before you do, know this. 
for you to have a great God-honoring relationship with your spouse or future spouse for our singles in here, first things first, you have to make sure that you have a right relationship with the God who made you. You know, in the beginning when man sinned against God, not only was our relationship with God broken, but so was our relationship with one another. We often fail to realize that two relationships were ruined at the fall. When Adam sinned, God's relationship with man was ruined, but so was man's relationship with woman. And we see this play out on a daily basis, don't we? We do. You don't have to search too long and hard to to see that a good number of relationships in our world today are in shambles because of the fall. Well, what's the answer? It's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? The answer is Jesus. For us to repair the broken relationships that we have with one another, we must first have our relationship with God restored, and that's only possible through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning, and you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I urge you today to turn from your sins, Trust in Him this very moment, this very day, as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.